uh, macro with uh, these experts here. We're really, really lucky to have them. And so uh, Nicholas will be discussing uh, and conducting the discussion today. So let's begin. How's it going, everybody? I'm excited as always to have these great macro speakers here with us. As those who frequent our spaces know, I like to keep these panels really open, really fluid for discussion. So of course, panelists, please feel free to discuss openly. Add any of your thoughts to any given topic. Just one request is that you use that little hand raise Twitter emoji, just so we can avoid background noise and too much talking over each other. And as I run through the introductions here, folks, please feel free to plug anything you're working on. I know we're in a new year. I'm sure you all have a lot of new endeavors going on, so please feel free to plug that. If you've got a post about it or a tweet about it, we'll pin it up here in the nest. Let's get going. First up, we've got Joseph Wang, FedGuy12, a friend of our Twitter spaces. Always welcome here, Joseph. Thanks again for coming. He's our go-to FedGuy. Headed the trading at the Fed's open desk. Has an incredible book called Central Banking 101. Is a CIO at Monetary Macro. And as always, Joseph, welcome. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. I love these faces. And these spaces love you, Joseph. Thank you. Up next, we've got our incumbent, Jam Croissant. Jam Carson is a leading volatility expert, founder of Kai Volatility, which you should subscribe to, and an incredibly passionate educator in the options vol and flow space, and was recently on CNBC. Welcome, Jam. I'm kind of a big deal, guys. <laughs> um, no, uh, great to be here. Always, always enjoy these conversations. Get, uh, get, get as much out of it as, uh, as I put it every time. So wonderful to be here with all these guys. Appreciate having you, Jim. Thank you. Next, we've got Bob Elliott, the CIO at Unlimited Fund, former IC at Bridgewater, and an all-around macro geek, a third-timer to these spaces. Let's give Bob a warm welcome. How are you doing today, Bob? Hey there. Uh, thanks for, for having me. Should be, uh, well, it might be exciting or it might be boring. I guess we'll have to see. <laughs> Maybe we'll get a little bit of both, hey? So next we've got the Last Bear standing, a friend of the spaces, always happy to have him here. Last Bear is an expert on numerous things, writes about the markets, economy, and monetary policy, excuse me, monetary policy in his weekly substack, where he also details the subtleties often forgot in macro. If you're not subscribed to Last Bear's substack, please go do that. Welcome back, Last Bear. Thanks, thanks for having me. I just want to echo what some of the other folks have said, that these spaces really are I think the best out there and I definitely learn a ton and look forward to hearing from everyone else who's on here. So you guys do a great job with it and I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Looking forward to it as well. Thank you, Last Bear. Last but not least, we've got Jolie Politano. Joey is an active friend of the spaces as well, shared by all of the greatest economists on Twitter. He's got a great newsletter. It's a must read dealing with all things macro and check out his guy one last time as well. We're honored to have you here again, Joey. How you doing? Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's it's a beautiful day here in Washington D.C. The sun just came out and is like peering through my window, which feels significant <laughs> for setting the mood. Um, but yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. Pleasure to have you. So now that we've got that going, let's just kind of jump in. Before we get started here, I just want to give a quick overview of where we stand macro-wise one month into 2023. At the last FOMEC, we saw a 50 basis point rate hike, the 7th of 2022 at the time. 
The latest CPI came in at 6.5% with the US GDP at 2.9% versus the 2.6 inspected. We've also still been dealing with that inverted yield curve, which is usually regarded as a precursor to recession. So to start us off here, Last Bear, I'd love to hear what you're most looking forward to in the first FOMEC meeting of 2023, given your recent statement, I quote, for the first time in a while, I'm genuinely curious to hear from Powell this week. Yeah, no, I, I am. I think the last couple go-arounds, um, not, not that I didn't tune in, but um, I think we kind of knew what, what they were going to say. There was, it was clearly, if you're thinking about the, the dual mandate, um, the, uh, the bias of the Fed was towards you know, raising rates, and it was doing that in a fairly predictable way in the past couple, um, you know, the past couple meetings. Um, now, there is at least some degree of balancing, uh, I think, as they're looking forward into uh, the economy um, as to, you know, taking into consideration both the level of tightening that's happened to date um, with potentially softening macro outlook to some extent, um, combined with still uh, an uncertain future on inflation. So I do think it's actually now sort of a, a more critical time or at least a more interesting time in the past couple of FOMC meetings. So I'm, I'm curious to hear how Powell addresses that. Um, I think 50 basis, or sorry, 25 basis points is clearly the consensus. And I think I, I expect that that's what will happen, but um, I'm curious to, to hear his comments in, in the press or afterwards as well. Thank you, Les Bear. And yeah, it does seem that that consensus of the 99.8 chance is pretty widely accepted as the likely today. And so on that note, Joseph, currently FedWatch has us at a 99.8% chance for five target rate, which would of course mean that rate hike of 25 bips at the FOMEC this morning. According to Forbes, that increase of 25 BPS is highly likely, just like we said here so far, but there's still some chatter amongst economists for the possibility of 50 bips. Joseph, what are you seeing for this FOMEC rate hike, given that 6.5% increase in CPI from the December report? Is, uh, is 25 bips too little or too much? What do you want to see on the dot plots, Joe? So as a, as a principle, the Fed, at least the modern Fed, doesn't like to surprise markets. So those odds you quoted, that's, that's basically a done deal. They're going to do 25. And I'm with last year. I think what's really important is to see how Powell uh, guides for the coming months. Now, the market is thinking that they'd hike another 25 and then maybe towards the end of the year, start cutting rates. I think how Powell addresses those rate cuts that are pricing the market is really what I'm looking for. So as the last fair noted, um, we're, we're at an interesting juncture where the Fed has hiked rates, as Nick, you summarized earlier, but at the same time, the data has come in a bit softer. So it seems like the rate hikes are working. And I'm sure Bob and Joey uh, have a lot more expertise in, in the real economy data. But at the same time, um, the financial conditions have also loosened. So uh, over the past few months, mortgage rates have come down, asset prices have gone up, um, the dollar has weakened. And you can see a very good Twitter thread by the Redfin CEO suggesting that the housing market is reheating up again. So Powell has a, has a, has a tough job. So he has a mandate of both um, full employment and inflation. And in the past, it's mostly been about inflation for the past year. So they've been happy hiking rates. But now with growth slowing, um, maybe unemployment might be
be coming into the picture. So if they were to maintain rates right now, maybe inflation will come will go back down, but then they might risk their unemployment mandate going back higher. From what I gather though, and I think we've been very clear about this, that they view these risks as asymmetric. So they're much more afraid of inflation getting under control than unemployment rising again, because from their perspective, it, if inflation continues to go out of control, uh, that means that inflation expectations could destabilize. So I'm inclined to think that power <coughs> will push against the implied easing in the markets and talk, I guess, hawkishly. Uh, but um, I'm not sure the market would listen. The, the past few meetings, the, the market has been very content to ignore whatever the FOMC has been saying and just basically hear that rate kites are imminent, even though that's that's clearly what they're not saying. So we'll definitely dive deeper into that comment there later on, Joseph. But for now, that brings me to another point I wanted to ask. As many have voiced the question, does it even matter? Right. Some would say that the markets currently see inflation on a trajectory of decline and expect a reversal for the Fed this year, some saying as early as spring. Markets seem to think this. But the Fed remains concerned that core inflation is still, quote unquote, stubbornly high and that inflation still has a notable upside risk. Jim, are the markets being overly optimistic? What are you seeing in both the markets as well as the volatility world, Jim? Yeah. So. Look, uh, just over a week ago, uh, Brainerd came out and, uh, you know, had, had a comment that, that I thought was particularly interesting. It got read uh, kind of in two different ways, but, but she really elevated this, uh, this narrative uh, that this is trans, like a lot of this could very well be transitory and that we could be getting back to uh, kind of sub 2% inflation. You know, the Fed hadn't really been saying that for a while, right? And for Brainerd to come out, and make a big comment about that. I thought it was very notable. Uh, not a lot of people talked about it. Um, granted, Tim Rose came out uh, just two days ago and then tried to talk about how the staff has now been pushing on the committee, right, to actually be a little bit more um, hawkish. But uh, I thought that that Brainerd comment a week and a half ago was very, very important in the sense that the Fed feels a pressure, they're getting pulled in two directions and they feel like they need to stop and see because there are, the distribution of outcomes here in their mind, based on what they're saying is, is very wide. And they've made a lot of moves. And, uh, you know, the sense I'm getting is, is, you know, from all the comments is that they really just need to survey, wait and see. And that's what they wanna do. The problem is markets. Markets have really front run this pause that they're talking about. The market markets are quick to see what this, that this is happening. And a pause is seen as very positive. A lot of people are underweight the markets. I'm personally, as a fund manager, getting calls all the time from people saying, look, I missed this rally. What am I going to do? How do I do this? And this is not from like million dollar investor mom and pop. These are billion dollar shops that are calling me and be like, John, tell us, how do we get in? What do we do? Should we wait? Should we not? That's, there's a real, um, you know, having missed this rally feeling going on. And so this market is going to, you know, keep doing that in the short term. I think that's important for people to understand, particularly the next couple of weeks. And, and, and the Fed's in a tough spot because they're in the business of dampening volatility. They do not want these markets higher because if they do, that means you know, there's, a, there's a natural kind of easing going on and, and they're going to have to push up against that. So that's what this Timrose uh, comment was about, uh, you know, the, the, you know the, the, the balloon that was floated a couple of days ago is about, I think you're going to continue trying to hear that for Fed. Uh, you know, from the Fed today, 
Um, but I don't think it matters. Like, uh, you know, uh, Joseph said, like, it's it, it, the markets are, are, you know, about supply and demand and people are kind of stuck and having to chase. And the Fed ultimately can't increase. I don't think they want to increase rates dramatically from here, though. They may go do, keep doing quarters for, you know, meeting after meeting, but that's not going to shake markets uh, at this point. Um, and so I, I really think the Fed's in a tough spot here because uh, the markets say, uh, you know, markets are going to naturally ease and is going to force their hand um, eventually. Thank you, Jim. And obviously, we're going to dive deeper into that as well once we're through statements. A lot of really good always. So to move on to my next opening question here, it's recently been said that many believe a decade of persistently high inflation is possible, if not inevitable. Bob, you recently said that in Europe, at least, ECB is seeing rising inflation and will be above 5%. Do you think, Bob, that inflation is going to be, as they said, persistently high in the U.S.? And as a follow-up on that, how do you think the markets adjust to inflation over 2023 and 2024 and what changes we make? Well, I think from a trading markets perspective, <clears throat> you want to start with what's priced in. And basically what's priced in, let's start with the U.S. context, is for inflation to return to, to essentially 2% or darn close to it and stay there forever, uh, you know, with no, with no issues. Uh, and... You know, that is certainly a possibility that we return to basically the pre-COVID era of persistently, you know, 2% inflation. You know, at the same time, I think there's a lot of reasons, uh, both cyclically and structurally, why you would expect inflation to be higher than 2% or higher than it was over the course of the last, say, 20 years. Those include things like, you know, uh, on, you know forced onshoring, deglobalization. Those are some of the, the you know, a, a fair amount of limited structural investment in commodities that happened for a long time. All of those things are, um, are things that would structurally cause upward pressure on inflation. And then tactically or cyclically in the United States context, you've got you know, you still have relatively tight labor markets, all things considered, they've softened the tad, but, you know, unemployment is at secular lows and, um, and real incomes have not, have been negative over the, over the last, uh, in the post-COVID period. And so it could easily make sense that you have a situation where the cyclical pressures continue to put upward pressure on uh, inflation as well. And so when you look at that mix of things, you know, the, the odds that we have something that's higher than two rather than just at two seem, you know, balanced, skewed in the favor of something higher than what's currently priced in. That then, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of narrowing the scope more and more from the Fed's perspective. I think it's really important to recognize the Fed got burned by trying to predict what the heck was going on over the course of, you know, 2021 and early 2022. They are... And that was, if anything, a bit of an unusual stance, because typically the Fed looks at the data and responds to the data that they see rather than is predictive of what's likely to happen. And so that's when we narrow in on what's going on right now. Like the Fed in the last couple of months has seen moderating inflationary pressures across a lot of different dynamics, uh, partially from commodity prices, partially from 
goods that had supply chain issues that are now getting resolved, um, you know, partially from services, all of those things are coming down. They may not be coming down as much as they want, particularly in the services X housing part of things. But you're looking at, you know, core PCE and PCE numbers in, uh, in deflator numbers that are, you know, in the ballpark of what they want to have happen over time. And in many ways, they are constrained by that reality, even though they might see some of these things I just talked about on a longer term basis, they're constrained by the reality that they need to be responsive to that. And so when you see, you know, moderating inflation, slowing growth, you've tightened a lot, it makes a lot of sense that we'd be transitioning from a point of tightening relatively aggressively to taking a pause, taking a beat and seeing whether or not they have done enough to help structurally break those inflation pressures. Do I think they have? Probably not, but they're constrained by that data and it would it's the most prudent decision for them to make given what they're seeing to, to move to a pause. Thank you, Bob. Now, Joey, I'm gonna spin to you here. You were recently shared by Paul Krugman, which is good or bad in some circles, depending on your social circle, but you said, ECI data recently makes a soft landing more possible despite everything we said. Now, given Bob's comments on inflation moderating across all data sets, Joey, could you explain in reference to your recent CPI data post on soft landings and what the data is telling you? Sure. So I would say, you know, uh, right now it's like February. If you had come and talked to me like six months ago and you said, Joey, what's the chance of a soft landing? where uh, in my mind, a soft landing is just one where you're able to get inflation back down to target, back down to 2% without uh, a recessionary increase in the unemployment rate. If you had asked me that six months ago, I would have said that chance is, is fairly low. And I think most members of the FOMC would have actually agreed with that sentiment. If you look at like the summary of economic projections, the, the median FOMC member expected the unemployment rate to go up 1% uh, this year, in 2023. That was their last projections. And that's like a recessionary increase in the unemployment rate. Like no two ways about it. That's a lot of people losing their jobs. It's a very severe downturn. And in my mind, it was kind of a, a naive forecast because it was saying, oh, the unemployment rate's going to rise and then we're just going to catch it really quickly. <laughs> it's gonna stop rising. We're totally in control of the situation. Things are not going to get worse immediately after that. Um, so the outlook was, you know, pretty grim. In the months since then, you know, obviously we're seeing like the higher interest rates, tighter monetary policy, worse financial conditions passing through to real economic variables. And we're seeing a pretty substantial slowdown that's passing through to prices. So we got like some encouraging CPI data, including uh, especially some encouraging prints on um, non-housing components of CPI and the wage data um, coming in below expectations. And that's been very important because the Fed's been emphasizing these uh, core services X housing prices, which is a very narrow subset. Um, to me, sometimes it feels like you're saying if you just exclude all the other prices, just focus on these one things, um, this is where we think the core of inflation is. And in their models, in the, in the Fed's models, those are driven by wage pressures that need to alleviate 
for inflation to structurally return back to 2%. So that's them saying, okay, we need to get wage growth back down to where it was before the pandemic for us to have any chance of getting inflation back down to normal. And the ECI data we got um, two days ago showed a pretty substantial deceleration in wage growth, uh, one that was faster than people expected, faster than the consensus estimates, and one that combined with the slowdown in the job market, the slowdown in hiring, points to a labor market that in my mind is not adding as much to uh, inflationary pressures as it was even six months ago or so. And so that combination of, okay, you've, you've raised rates, you're having the very core pressures on inflation alleviate, and so far, the labor market has remained fairly strong. That to me is like the, the Goldilocks recipe for a soft landing. And while I wouldn't yet say that that's the base case or the most likely case, I think the chances of that occurring have been steadily rising since about the summer of 2022. Thank you, Joey. Bob, go ahead. I was just about to ask if anybody had any comments before we moved on. Well, I think I, I agree with what Joey's saying in terms of his characterization, both in terms of like six months ago, the idea that a soft landing could occur was, you know, close to very, very low probability. And today when we see things, we see, you know, it, it is a more plausible outcome than it was back then. I think it's important, though, to look at uh, what's priced into the markets relative to the plausibility that we get a soft landing. And, you know, in a lot of ways, if you look over the course of the last three months, the combination of the rally in bonds, uh, the expected cuts, the, the ex expectation of low inflation or, or a swift return to 2% inflation and equities rallying a ton, all of that <laughs> is pricing in an increased probability of a soft landing scenario. And I think when you look through each one of those pieces and you kind of put it all together, what, what's priced in for a soft landing is closer to, let's say, 75 or 80% when you scan across markets. But the, but the probability of a soft landing has only moved from maybe, you know, 10% to maybe 30%. And so that really is, that's the, the core of the opportunity, I'd say, in, in, in trading markets right now is, uh, recognizing the overpricing of the probability of a soft landing and finding opportunities to fade that in a variety of different places. Thank you, Bob. So does anybody else have anything else to add from the inflation data and commodities yeah. data moderating? Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, so I think the whole, again, I've, I've said this a couple of times, I wanna just keep bringing this front and center, this whole narrative that, <clears throat> that it's about the recession, right? That, that markets are the economy is completely wrong. It's something that everybody's taught on CNBC and all these other places that like the two are the same thing. 60s and 70s, right? The market went nowhere for 14 years. We had above trend economic growth in real terms with inflation really high. Nominal GDP was very high. Markets went nowhere for 14 years. Markets 
the worst case environment, you know, Bob, Bob said, you know, uh, nobody would have expected a soft landing. That's I've been sitting here for a year and a half saying soft landing. That's, that's what the sixties and seventies were. It was a series of soft landings, low kind of, uh, you know, recessions followed by some, some strong growth. It was a demand push economy. We are in a demand push economy. It will continue to outperform what people expect on a GDP growth side. Um, what that means though, is that every time that demand push comes back, right? The Fed has to get more active again and inflation will stabilize at higher and higher long-term rates. We haven't had a lot of the effects of, of, uh, of the Fed's uh, raising rates because it's just been based on the short end of the curve. The long of the curve is still, you know, expecting everything to go back down to 2%. What happens when all of a sudden the world catches up to this idea that long-term interest rates are actually going structurally higher. I think that's the important piece that a lot of people are missing. I think the more you hear the word Goldilocks, I just heard the word Goldilocks, the more you run for the hills. Do a little search uh, right now for, for search terms, uh, Goldilocks. Look at what that chart looks like. Uh, that's, that's your biggest warning sign yet. So I think there's a rally still underneath this market, but, but uh, you know, just be watchful here because the soft landing is probably the worst thing for markets. Thank you, Jim. Some good feedback and opinions there. Love to all of that. Last bear, do you have any thoughts here regarding soft landings and what Joey and Jem are saying or any other panelists after last bear as well? Yeah, no, I, I think I um, kind of agree with uh, what, what Bob was saying earlier about where the market is pricing versus um, what the what the probabilities are. And one thing that, um, so like if you play out this soft landing scenario, um, I don't see that the Fed is going to start slashing rates by, you know, back down to zero to the extent that unemployment is low and, um, you know, consumption and real growth remains positive. Um, and yet, effectively, that's what's being priced in the market. If you look at Fed futures or just long end of the treasury curve or, you know, long duration yields in general, um, really those only make sense if we see substantial rate cuts in, you know, the near to medium term. And you just don't get that in the soft landing scenario. The Fed would be, you know, if, if unemployment stays uh, stays low and inflation comes down, um, as I think uh, Joseph mentioned earlier, the Fed's bias now um, has has changed a lot. I think in the past three years, from going from really being more scared about the unemployment side of their mandate rather than the inflation side, and if anything, you know, thinking of ways to to maybe get inflation a little higher. Um, and so they acted in a, in a policy manner that reflected that attitude. Um, now I think that that situation is reversed where the Fed feels pretty comfortable in its ability to uh, stoke the economy and stoke inflation if, if they needed to. Um, they've proven that they can do it. And so a scenario where they're still sort of, you know, working to rebuild their credibility and uh, real economic growth is is strong and the unemployment doesn't you know explode in some dramatic fashion i just don't see rate cuts happening in the way that they're being priced so i think i agree with bob that that there's a disconnect between sort of the soft landing possibility and you know what, what the market is sort of pricing which i think is uh harder than than a soft landing so so i'll jump in about the, the soft landing i think one of the big macro forces that is happening now is that our population is aging, so our workforce isn't growing as quickly as it used to be. And if, if that's happening, if your workforce is not growing as quickly as it used to be, then when you look at unemployment, you kind of have a tailwind if you're the Fed, 
because even if, um, let's say, things go south in the economy, unemployment can still stay pretty low simply because of demographics. And that's a big shift in the world that we haven't seen uh, before. And so going forward, you know, I think that if you have this kind of structural tailwind keeping unemployment low, the Fed would be more focused on inflation. It would be kind of becoming more like a one-to-mandate bank since demographics take care of the other mandate. Um, I really like Jim's point about interest rates. Now, I think it's, I mean, asset prices, like Jim mentioned, are all supply and demand. So it's hard to infer too much from where long-term long -term yields are. I mean, there's a lot of people who have to buy those who are not buying them based upon any economics of it, but because their mandates constrain them. For example, you could be a sovereign wealth fund who can only buy treasuries. You could be a bank or who's heavily encouraged to buy those. But in addition to some of the maybe underpriced inflation, you have a lot of structural issues where the Fed is stepping out or some foreign, uh, perhaps some foreign sovereign funds are not as interested in treasuries because of country risk. You know, going forward, that, that probably comes into the pricing eventually. Thank you, Joseph. Joey, do you have any comments on what Jim was saying, maybe about the Goldilocks commentary? Sure. I think the one thing I will say is, um, this is kind of related, that the, the Fed has really struggled to communicate um, outcome probabilities in a way that influence financial conditions. It's a very nerdy way of me trying to say that they are uh, the ongoing problem for the Fed. And I think this is going to come into uh, more relief as we get further into this year, is that at any time that they say, we think the economy is improving, the response is for monetary policy to, to tighten, for people to price out rate hikes. And, and the inverse, too, is that if they say, well, we think the economy is worsening or it has to get worse for inflation to come down, uh, immediately markets start pricing in more cuts deeper into the year thinking that a recession is more likely. And so you have this weird amalgamation where the, the short-term interest rate pricing is really reflective of this idea that there's, you know, uh, don't hold me to the probabilities here, but it's like, okay, there's a 30% chance of some sort of soft-ish landing. There's like a 50% chance of some sort of hardish landing, and there's a 20% chance that inflation is persistent without much of a slowdown. And in each of those scenarios, the, the interest rate path the Fed takes is radically different. And so the interest rates we, we see today, the financial conditions we see today, reflect partially how much markets just think like, oh, this is going to get better or worse in the near future. Um, and so this is like the Fed's messaging recently where they've been trying to say, like, we're not going to cut in 2023. You know, we're serious about this inflation thing, blah, blah, blah. And no one has, you know, markets have not moved with that Fed speak, you know, partially because anytime they come out and say, we think interest rates need to be higher for longer, we think we need monetary policy to be tighter, markets go, okay, cool. <laughs> that means a recession is going to happen or is more likely to happen. And that means you're going to cut rates. <laughs> um, and so it is this like really weird dynamic. And I think especially if you're looking at this from the perspective of um, trying to price in that risk, it's very difficult right now. 
Thank you, Joey. Bob, do you have any comments on what people have said so far in response to your last question? Oh, I think, um, I, I think the, um, the point about the story, and it kind of goes back to your opening question, which is like, if we, if you believe that it's even possible that there's going to be a soft landing, um, or you think it's of some probability that there's going to be more economic momentum relative to, you know, what the Fed can do to slow it down, then you should hate bonds. Um, and that that, you know, I think when I when I look across, you know, what's priced into to assets in particular, the bond market, <clears throat> you know, is pricing in something that has, uh, you know, does not have an extremely high probability, given in particular the way the BEI is priced, um, you know, that that circumstance seems seems like a low probability. And probably more so, like, if you think that soft landing-ish, like, if you, if you go back to that story of the 60s and the 70s, like, for stocks, it was not a great time, particularly on a real basis, but it wasn't awful. For bonds, it was horrific, <laughs> right? Like, that's the, you know, for a while there until you started to get enough yield to offset the continued sell-offs. And so, you know, that's... We're starting with a much lower, you know, we're starting with a low yield going into what could be 10 years of bad bond returns. And um, and so the bond market seems like it's the thing that's not pricing this set of dynamics uh, uh, as well as it should. And in particular, BEI in the bond market. Thank you, Bob. So with about half an hour until we get that BIPs here, I do want to talk a little bit about rates since we did talk about rates a bit. So Joseph, wherein rates on long-term bonds fall below those of short-term bonds? We saw a slight yield curve like this in 2019 and again in 2021, but throughout 2022, namely between July and December, this inversion seemed to become more and more dramatic. As of the 30th of January, the 10-2 year treasury spread sat at about negative 0.7% compared to 0.63% this time last year and 1% in late January of 21. Joseph, can you walk listeners through a bit what this means for them in the market? Is this yield curve inversion indeed the harbinger of an impending recession? And uh, does the Fed even really look at these indicators? And if so, how, Joe? So that's a great question. Historically, people think of a curve inversion as a harbinger of recessions. And if you look at the track record over the past few decades, it's a pretty good track record. Usually the curve inverts before before recession. And it's helpful to think about why that might be. If you think about long dated yields as just the path of short dated yields plus a little term premium, then when longer dated yields are trading below shorter dated yields, then that's basically the market suggesting that the Fed will eventually cut rates very quickly. And then if you take a step back and think, why would the Fed be cutting rates? That suggests, well, Fed usually cut rates because um, the economy is not doing well, there's a recession. So that's, that's I think that's the logic to it. Uh, if you ask Jay Powell or the Fed officials what they think about this, and Jay Powell has been asked pointedly what he thinks about this. And honestly, he just kind of shrugs his shoulders. He doesn't really care. And Part of the reason I think he doesn't care is as a central bank, he's kind of in the 
in the in the uh, habit of, I guess, adjusting or influencing interest rates. For example, he buys trillions of dollars of long-dated bonds in the market. Obviously, the point of that is to put downward pressure on longer-term yields. And if he has a, such a big influence on this, then you have to kind of think and wonder, does the, does the longer-term yield still have as good a signal as it did, I'd say, before the great financial crisis? And a lot of things have changed since the, uh, since the financial crisis. You have um, not just large-scale Fed QE, but you have QE uh, across the world and other central banks, such as the ECB as well. And the way the sovereign bond market works is that global sovereign bonds are connected. So if you have one country far away suppressing their interest rates, let's say yield curve control in Japan, that bleeds into all sovereign bond markets as well. And when you do this on a massive scale, and we are doing this on a massive scale, I think it stands to reason that maybe the signal isn't the same as it was before. Now, that being said, from what I understand, the Fed is making efforts to try to um, push longer-term bond yields higher, uh, maybe to tighten financial conditions a bit. The way they do this is quantitative tightening, where they let the bonds they hold on their balance sheet roll off. And of course, the U.S. Treasury is doing their part by continuing to issue significant amounts of debt and uh, this year and for the foreseeable future. So uh, I, I don't really, my own view, I don't really read too much into a curve inversion. I expect that to actually gradually, if not flatten in a bearish way or to re-steepen going forward. Thank you, Joseph. Jem, one thing we never get to speak about is, is how rates and bonds correlate with market volatility conditions. So, Jem, I'd love your take always here, since if I don't ask about it now, I may never get the chance, or knowing myself, I'll just forget about it in 10 minutes. So, Jem, how do you look at long-term rates and realize volatility around these type of decisions? Yeah, I think uh, the reason that markets don't perform, I mean, in the basic terms, uh, during rising uh, interest rates is kind of man, many fold uh, kind of walked through these before, but, you know, first and foremost, the, the, the obvious reason is there's just less demand for assets uh, with higher cost of money. People have less money to invest um, Two, uh, the reverse Tina effect. Um, we had, there's a lot of different pe names people are throwing for that, uh, thrown out for that. We need to probably normalize that, but, but um, you know, retina, um, retina, whatever you want to call it, the, the money's flowing to bonds. I have people calling me all the time being like, uh, why would I invest in X or Y if I can just get 5% um, by with, you know, risk-free? Um, that's pulling money out. And as that goes higher, you get more and more of that. That risk premia also increases dramatically. Uh, what do I mean by risk premia? Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, there's less liquidity. Market makers, banks, et cetera, have less uh, ability to absorb liquidity, um, which itself increases volatility. Um, risk premia uh, itself, um, you know, makes equities or risk assets, things further out the risk curve, uh, more expensive relative to the risk. Never mind the more traditional uh, kind of effects that we we talk, you know, that everybody more on a fundamental basis knows, which is discount rates, right, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, there there are uh, if you sum these all up and think about the, the, the amount of demand that's been pushed into equities all these years that's now being withdrawn 
um, it's dramatic, right? There's this, there's this whoosh sound of all this money flowing out of equities into bonds and out of the market writ large. Um, and I think there's, so there's this fundamental connection between volatility and, uh, and, and the more risk premium there is, the more actual realized volatility there is, um, you know, uh, the more tail risk uh, there is in markets as well. So I think it's important to understand that. That said, last thing I'll say about volatility, that's this kind of short term, uh, et cetera, volatility over longer time periods in inflationary periods, because there are these, these everything I just mentioned are this second order effects. These are the supply demand effects, et cetera. The obvious first order effect when people think about inflation is, oh, on a fundamental basis, if there's inflation every year, you're getting a, a discount in real terms to your, to your asset value. So the value, you know, on a valuation basis, things are cheaper. What happened to the 60s and 70s and what tends to happen during inflationary periods is stuff just gets cheaper and cheaper. Multiples come down dramatically because there's just less demand. And ultimately that creates a put on the market. And that's when valuations, discounted cash flows, all these things start to matter again. I, I'm given that plain analogy. I won't do it again, but a lot of people on here probably know it. But the reality is, you know, the lower and lower we get, uh, it's closer to the ground. The more less risk there is for markets, the more downside volatility gets compressed. So if you're looking at long-term skew, long-term downside, um, the reality is about five years, three years, whatever, a lot of that is probably still, you know, it's fairly priced now that skew has come down and, and kind of vol is, is, you know, is in there. The, in the short term, though, you're, you're likely to get a lot more volatility and a lot more reduction in, in the value and asset, risk assets. Thank you, Jim. We'll definitely talk a bit more about volatility in a bit here. But for now, I want to touch a little bit on federal funds borrowing. So on that note, daily borrowing in federal funds seems to be on the rise kind of rapidly. For example, on January 27th, borrowing rose to $120 billion versus $113 billion during the previous. So, Bob, what... What consequences are faced with borrowing occurring at this 4.3% when a large number of assets are stuck at a yield much lower than that? Well, I think it, it, um, it suggests that there's some friction going on in, uh, in the financial system. You know, I think probably <clears throat> Fed guy has a better, uh, a better, granular understanding of it but you know usually you you don't usually you don't go and borrow there unless uh unless things unless you a lot of other options have dried up for you and they may be transitory or or just doing it for a short period of time you know i think in general we have a circumstance where there is a lot of demand you know there is a lot of cash in the system and the question is you know where exactly is that cash flowing to, or those essentially deposits or deposit-like uh, interest flowing to, and, you know, there's not quite enough T-bills out there to satisfy the demand. Banks are being cautious about raising their deposit rates. You can get a lot of money going into the RFP, and so maybe what we're seeing is we're seeing a little bit of a, a friction in that whole system where, you know, maybe the banking system is not getting quite as many uh, deposits uh, or financing as they want, um, and so they're doing that. But it is it is a bit unusual. I'd be interested. Hello. Yeah, go ahead, Joseph. I think we might have lost Bob to a little bit of connection there at the end, but it looked like he, yep, he's dropping here connection. So, Joseph, I would like to hear your thoughts here as well. 
Yeah, I actually stare at this every day for, for a few years, so I have a pretty good time in this. So the way that this works is that, so pre-great financial crisis, if a bank needed some money, they would oftentimes go into the federal funds market, which is a market where a bank borrows overnight from another bank. Um, Post-GFC, they have this new set of rules called Basel III that discourages banks from borrowing overnight from another bank. So banks usually don't do that anymore. What, uh, Nick, can you mute your, your mic? Oh yeah, sorry about that. So what happens now is that um, right now, the only, the only lenders in the federal funds market are these government entities called federal home loan banks. And the federal home loan banks have cash, but they don't receive interest on reserves like a, a normal bank would. So what they do is that they try to earn a little return on their cash by lending it out to who's usually a foreign bank, basically. Now, foreign banks are under slightly different regulations, and so they feel okay borrowing from a federal home loan bank. And so what happens is that a foreign bank borrows from a federal home loan bank, takes that money, and deposits it at the Fed to earn interest on reserves. And what's been happening the past few months is that the federal home loan banks have a lot of extra cash they have a lot of extra cash because um, they're getting ready to make loans to commercial banks. Recently, commercial banks have been borrowing a lot from the federal home loan banks. A federal home loan bank is basically a government-sponsored agency whose entire job is to provide cheap funding to commercial banks. And since commercial banks are borrowing a lot from federal home loan banks, federal home loan banks have a lot of cash sitting idly at their account, and they put it to use by lending it in the federal funds market. So it's, it's really more of a... Um, response to greater demand for funding by making sector uh like Bob suggested but more more directly demand for funding from federal banks and that's very wonky but that's better thank you joseph so last bear you recently said that fed losses are not a problem in a practical sense and therefore the fed's losses are the private sector's gains Given Bob's and Joseph's comments here today, could you explain your thoughts there a bit, Last Bear? Yeah, sure. I think it's important. I, I agree with um, what those guys said. I think it's also important to, when thinking about banks, to understand that there's um, many, many, many banks in the country um, outside of JP Morgan's and Wells Fargo's. Um, if you look at sort of the cash assets of, of banks um, split by size, um, cash reserves across the banking sector have come down meaningfully across the board, but it, exceptionally in the case of smaller banks. Um, and so it could be a scenario here where um, the demand for funding from the discount window, or, or which people have talked about recently, um, or Fed funds borrowing, um, is driven by a specific set of institutions that you know aren't the large money center banks that, that we typically think of, but are maybe smaller banks. So to put some specifics around that. If you look at small domestically chartered commercial banks, um, the amount of cash held by those banks has been has reduced by over 50% since um, about a year ago. Um, so it's about 900 billion a year ago. It's less. It's 425 billion today. Um, and so there is, you know, we, we like to think of the market as just being sort of this one uniform pool. But I think that you have to acknowledge that that there's different, um, you know, players that all have different. Um, positions, uh, needs, and and you know that that policy affects those um, players in different ways. Um, and so we could see a situation 
um, where you actually have smaller banks who maybe um, you know don't have don't get as much of the institutional type um, flows through it um, coming under more pressure and needing to raise uh, funds in that manner. So I think you see deposits are, are, are going down across the banking sector um, as a result of, of QT. Um, but the, uh, the, the cash assets of, of banks really depends on, on which banks you're, you're looking at. So that's my, that's my thought on that. I guess with respect to your um, question about sort of the, the Fed's losses, um, really that, that's just a point around sort of a unique uh, aspect of the current financial system, which is that the, the Fed pays interest on um, bank reserves um, and also on other reverse rebuilds. So um, as the Fed continues to tighten, um, that is uh, putting more interest in the hands of those, so putting more cash in the, in the hands of, of banks and uh, money market investors. Um, but at the same time, that quantum is smaller than the effective QT. Um, so it, it dampens the impact to a degree, but um, it doesn't, doesn't cancel it out. Conditions are still, um, generally speaking, shrinking. Thank you. So now I just want to get a little bit onto the Fed's goals. So the Fed's goals of maximum employment, stable prices, moderate long-term interest rates, and their dual mandate exist to exists to maintain a stable monetary environment. For December, unemployment came in at 3.5% and core inflation came in at 3.6%. Joey, many have recently tweeted about the negative real and nominal PCE for the month of December, but core PCE price index increased. Can you break down for us, Joey, what this means, given what people have said about rates over the last section of comments here? Sure. I will say, um, so the Fed obviously focuses more on the PCE price index. That's their official target, not the CPI. Um, and so the movements there are important, especially as they differ substantially from the movements in CPI. And so PCE reflects, for example, it reflects a lot more non-housing services than CPI. So CPI is like one-third housing. Uh, PCE is, is closer to one-sixth housing. Um, although I would say, like I'll caveat that by saying, I think they're broadly telling the same story. And I think some of this is just the fact that CPI uh, has run a lot hotter and that CPI measures healthcare services in a different way than PCE. But that's like a very, very wonky discussion. Um, what I would say is, you know, the Fed has this, this dual mandate, as you mentioned. They try to balance um, employment and inflation off the backs of interest rate and monetary policy decisions. Uh, and that's a, a hard job to, like, get right. Um, but I also think a lot of the time the Fed isn't fully honest about what that job entails, you know, or about the trade-offs that, that matter for this, that job. And so, you know, like I think we all know, and I think so. lots of people in the Fed know deep down that a lot of what's going on with prices doesn't reflect things that are going on in financial markets. You know, if the price of oil is moving, that's not usually because the Fed is raising or lowering interest rates. Similar arguments for food, similar arguments for a lot of manufactured goods. So you end up with, uh, as we discussed earlier, the Fed is like focused in on this measure of 
core services, excluding housing, which is a very, very narrow way of looking at inflation within the PCE price index. I think at throwing away a lot of informative information, keeping a lot of stuff that is not informative. Um, but like to to wheel it back for a second, you know, if I'm Jerome Powell, if you're putting that hat on, if you're saying you want to balance uh, employment and inflation, to me that sounds like what you really want to manage labor income growth. You want to manage the growth rate of jobs and wages. And we've seen a big deceleration in that over the last few months, over the last you know, half a year, really. And so I think one thing that I'm looking for uh, at this FOMC meeting is for Jerome Powell, either in the press conference or in statements, to give kind of a hint that he's saying he's comfortable, more comfortable with the pace of growth, and they're comfortable with the parts of inflation that they don't control. They're saying that we have confidence that the parts that we do control are going to come down and that we think the parts that we don't control are out of our hands and we're going to worry about them a bit less, uh, considering they've been worrying about them a lot more recently. So that's like, uh, if you're thinking about shifting the balance of um, the balance of focus, which I think is a big theme of the spaces and of like the recent Fed stuff, I think the balance of focus is definitely shifting more away from inflation, more back towards employment. Although, like you said, like we said earlier, it's still like employment's ball, or it's still inflation's ball game until, uh, if and until we get back to a relatively normal level. It's a very long-winded answer, but I hope it made sense. Oh, I loved it. It looks like we've got some comments from Jim waiting. What do you got there, Jim? Yeah, this is more orthogonal, um, but I wanted to address an important point here that hasn't been discussed. Uh, you know, there's an important change afoot um, in the calculation of CPI. Um, CPI, you know, the BLS has, has recently updated their spending, you know, they're updating their spending weights in the calculation of CPI from updating every two years to every year. And that may seem like an innocuous thing, but because of the way uh, CPI has been, uh, that updating is going to cause CPI to naturally decline and show more progress on inflation than is expected. Um, and, and that's going to have a significant effect. Um, people have been focused on CPI. You don't, you haven't seen many volatile moves on PCE, despite the Fed, uh, you know, constantly saying that's what we're looking at. Uh, and PCI, PCI, PCI has been significantly hotter, uh, particularly on the core side, um, than, than kind of the narrative that's been put out there about CPI. And I think, you know, again, uh, timing wise, you look out at CPI February uh, 14th um, and, and you think about kind of if that number's uh, a, little, a little soft again, uh, which is likely to happen given these, these adjustments, um, what that will continue uh, to do to markets, right? Um, into a perfect window of strength, right? Uh, when, when markets would perfectly front run that, I, I think behind that sits a very nice kind of sell the news event uh, right in the middle of that Wednesday of OPEX, et cetera. I'm just gonna highlight that out there. I think the CPI PC thing, it's an important clue to, to psychology and narrative, et cetera, versus reality. And, and the reality is that, that inflation's not coming down as, I mean, as quickly as CPI is telling you, um, yes, it is softer, it is a soft landing 
kind of uh, reality. But if markets continue to run, there's a lot of other things that are also going to be very supportive of inflation that weren't the case, uh, you know, and, and the lagging data before reopening of China being the probably the biggest, right? Um, which is still just kind of happening because of, of the, you know, the amount of uh, COVID kind of spreading over the last couple of months. Um, you know, we saw in the U.S. what that looks like. You're, you're going to see something similar in China here in the months ahead. Um, you know, the market rallying itself reflexively is supported for inflation. SPR was, you know, during the election where there was a massive release of, of oil. They, now they're going to be buying it back. Uh, dollar weakness, 10-year, you know, has come down off its highs. There's a lot of things out there that were really, really kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, problems that are actually, if anything, going to going to you know stiffen inflation as we move forward. So I, again, I'd be very hesitant um, looking at CPI and saying, okay, all is well at this point. Um, you know, again, I think in the short term the market will front run this, um, but I think there's a, a, a selling opportunity uh, that lies ahead uh, on the back end of, of a of a short term rally. Thank you, Jim. Now. We kind of move on here while we wait on the Fomec release to come out here in about six, six and a half minutes here. Recently, Governor Waller mentioned two modifications to the Fed's QT framework and that he is, quote, open to maintaining QT even if policy rates are cut. In Joseph's recent piece, Come Hell or High Water, Joseph here mentioned that the bank reserves are on track to fall below that minimal level by the end of 2023. So, Joseph, in referring to your article, Come Hell or High Water, can you explain a bit what this means uh, through the problems of prolonged QT plus cutting policy rates? And then we can uh, get the panel's opinion on what this means and changes, if anything. Sure. So the Fed has been doing QT, and what QT does is that it withdraws liquidity out of the financial system, and it also increases the supply of treasuries into the market. And a couple constraints the Fed had in running QT was making sure that as they withdrew liquidity out of the financial system, the banking system would have enough liquidity to function. And by the Fed's own calculation, the banking system needs maybe two, two and a half trillion dollars worth of liquidity. Uh, the problem occurs when, when the Fed is draining liquidity, it doesn't actually have control, control of where the liquidity comes out of. Now, it could come out of the banking sector or it could come out of the reverse repo facility. But as we've seen, the reverse repo facility has been stuck at a very high level. So all the liquidity drains so far have come out of the banking sector. Now that's a problem for the Fed because like I mentioned, they want to make sure the banking system maintains liquidity above a certain threshold. Now, Governor Waller came out recently and he suggests that when he looks at banking sector liquidity, he adds the RFP into it. And so that totally changes the game because if you're looking at banking sector liquidity, then you know QT could only run a few more months unless the RRP started, started uh, liquidity in the RRP started declining. But when you add the RRP to the banking sector, you get a QT uh, you know, runway of, of about three years. Uh, the second big constraint about QT was that the Fed has a kind of a, a, a religious belief that whatever the policy rate does, the balance sheet rate has to do the same thing. So that means that they only do QE when they're in rate cutting mode and they only do QT uh, when they're in rate hiking mode. Now the market is, is 
is uh, pricing in rate cuts later in the year. And according to this dogma, that would also suggest that the Fed would be ending QT later in the year too, because it wouldn't make sense traditionally for, for the Fed to both be cutting rates, so increasing accommodation using their policy rate, and yet still tightening accommodation by conducting QT. But Governor Waller is suggesting that he is A-OK -okay with the Fed uh, both cutting rates and maintaining QT. And I think that has a pretty big impact on, on asset prices. Now, the Fed's current QT pace, in, in practice, they're probably doing, uh, let's say, seven, seven, eight hundred billion dollars a year. And that's a lot of duration that's applied in the market. So over the next three years, you're going to have, uh, you know, a large supply of, of uh, longer dated fixed income securities as the Treasury um, issues new issues to repay the Fed. That suggests to me that uh, you know, rates will go higher and it would logically be a headwind for a lot of risky assets as well. Um, but we'll see if Chair Powell has any more commentary on this uh, at, at his press conference. Because when I heard Waller speak, that, that seemed to me as something pretty new. So I think people will ask about that today. Beautiful. Thank you, as always, Joseph. Now, does anyone else on the panel want to comment on what Joseph said? For reference, on our last space for CPI, we discussed the Fed's QT dilemma of wanting to aggressively shrink the balance sheet and keep banking sector reserves above a minimum level. That requires QT to drain the RRP, which really doesn't appear to be happening. Instead, it seems that QT has drained and continues to drain liquidity from the banking sector. Maybe last bear, given your extensive writing on this, could you could you kind of touch on this a little bit? And we'll also have the announcement in about three minutes here, so maybe quiet a while while we read things as they come out to the folks listening. Uh, yeah, sure. I think it's absolutely an important um, uh, statement that was made um, with respect to how the Fed is is viewing um, QT and uh, the sources uh, for sort of supplying that QT from the banking sector as well as the reverse repo facility. And I think the, the Fed absolutely wants to shrink its balance sheet and to the extent that it can do that while also using rates to um, influence the economy in the, in the way that it desires. I think that would be an ideal scenario. So I understand why the Fed um, sort of wants to view it that way. Um, I think that the potential problem could come with you know how how that sort of works in practice and whether you know by making a decision that we're just going to um, basically continue to tighten um, you know tighten liquid liquidity and you know it'll work its way through the system in, in whatever way um, the system wants to work it um, could cause problems to the extent that um, you know that that the repo continues reverse repo continues not to drain and it comes from banks instead so you could have a situation where you know, the Fed says, hey, we're, we're going ahead with QT, but unless that money comes out of the reverse repo, it's going to come out of banks. Um, and as we sort of touched on earlier, there's already at least some sort of pressure on, on banks funding, um, people borrowing in, in different markets in a way that's, that's atypical, given what people think about the level of liquidity in the system. And so you really could have a situation where, you know, they, they think that that they're going to achieve this goal and, and going to drain the repo. But in reality, um, they could push banks to the edge of their sort of um, you know, minimum required reserves where you could have uh, market disruption as a result. And at that point, it becomes, you know, the Fed, you know, up, up to the Fed, whether they're okay with the, the sort of the, the volatility, sort of letting the market handle it. Um, if there was something like 
um, you know, sort of these key funding markets like the repo market or whatever having um, uh, some turbulence, whether they're okay with that or whether um, they will step in uh, in that situation. So I, so I think that, you know, it, it really comes down to how, how this happens in practice and it's not necessarily going to be a, a smooth road to the extent that that's sort of the plan that they're, they're doing, that they're taking. All right. Seems like we've got the report now. Looks like they are in do, indeed doing the 25 dips. So let's take just a moment here to digest the numbers a bit. Uh, for those of you listening, we will be streaming the presser that will come in about half an hour here. And for those of you who are interested in watching the video itself, that'll be over at the Unusual Whales Twitch at twitch.tv slash Unusual Whales. We'll have the video running there with some live chat as well. Uh, now that we know we've got 25 bips, I know we're all still digesting here, but does anyone on the panel have any preliminary comments before we move along? Uh, I think I just note that there's still that sentence that the committee anticipates that ongoing increases in the target range will be appropriate. So for those who are thinking that this is one and done, the Fed is telling you that they, they still want to continue to hike. And maybe we'll get more clarity as to how, how much from the problem. Uh, but also, I have to drop off now. I want to thank everyone for, for coming here and for listening. I really appreciate the panel. It looks like Bob is here, too. Um, learned a lot from you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, as always, for coming, Joseph. And for those of you who are interested to hear more about what Joseph says, please give him a follow. He writes a lot about these really good resource. Bob, any comments now that we got you back on, on the 25 bips here while we digest numbers? Yeah, I think this... This uh, part of it, and I'm just you know just digesting the the statement right now. This part of it is the uh, you know feels like the uh, the the appetizer for the main course, which is coming up here. So um, you know I think in many ways there there shouldn't be a lot of surprise uh, uh, in terms of what's here. Uh, I think what uh, just highlighted in terms of that one sentence is you know, of the things that could be. Uh, indicated here, probably the most interesting uh, sentence uh, of the different things. But um, you know, the real questions become uh, the real questions coming in the uh, in the in the press conference uh, and, the, and the comments that exist there. And in particular, I think the thing that's important to wrestle with here and understand is what is what is going to happen and what is the view with QT and how that will be navigated over time because you can easily see a circumstance over the course of the next you know the next three to six months where um, where you see the interest rate policy which connects to the real economy more tightly start to uh, start to level out you know get that pause there but the question for the asset markets is whether that continued sucking of liquidity out of the system will it continue will it not is there any sense of how that will change um you know that'll be an important thing to be looking at as we turn our attention to the to the press conference thank you anybody else have comments joey i saw that you unmuted for a moment there yeah i'll say um of course the, the arlington fire department is here as, as soon as i try to talk but perfect timing. um <laughs> perfect timing uh, I think the language that stays in saying, you know, ongoing in, in increases are appropriate. That's that was uh, that's a big deal, and that was like the big 
um, shift I was thinking might happen this meeting um, obviously did not happen. And so I think the Fed still is trying to communicate, like we discussed earlier, that they're you know serious about interest rates, that they're going to be hiking for a little bit uh, further, and that they are still on balance focused on inflation. What I will point out is that they, they swap the word uh, pace of increases, pace of rate hikes with the extent of rate hikes, which is a, an interesting change and it's very technical, but just uh, in my mind that's signaling a bit that they're saying, okay, we're, we're slowing down, but we're not yet ready to pivot. So that, that's the big shift. I will also say this is very um, interesting to me that they, they struck public health from the list of factors that they're influencing their assessment of monetary policy. So I think the Fed is basically saying that the pandemic's over for them. Thank you, Joey. Last Bear, do you have any comments here? Um, no, I, I, I just wanted to add another point um, going, going back a little bit when we're talking about liquidity and QT, um, that not only do does the Fed have to take into account um, you know, the, the gradual decline of the balance sheet over time, but also fluctuations with what's happening with the treasury, um, whether they're sort of raising debt and, and therefore drawing liquidity out of the system into the treasury general account or vice versa. Um, and so those swings post pandemic, we've seen to be very, very large. So after the debt ceiling was raised in late 2021, I think mid December, um, the treasury had basically no money left in its accounts, and it went out and raised uh, $900 billion worth of, worth of funds um, over the course of the next three or four months. Um, and so that is a huge swing um, in sort of bank reserves and market liquidity as a result of um, those fluctuations with the Treasury, especially given um, the size of the deficits and the need for ongoing funding. And it kind of has a unique sort of implication with the, with the debt ceiling debate as well, um, where until you get to the point, you know, the, the Treasury basically can't issue new um, net new debt at this point because we are at the statutory limit. Um, and so that's uh, plays a, sort of a reverse factor um, in the meantime where uh, the Fed, or sorry, the Treasury, rather than going out and issuing new debt, is spending down its its cash balance, um, which is sort of a, a positive thing from a market perspective um, because it's putting money out of the out of the Treasury and into the sort of the private sector, um, and that'll probably continue um, up until the the debt ceiling gets lifted sometime in the middle of the year. At which point, um, that's that's where we should start to be concerned about if there's a large issuance of treasury, um, how that sort of interplays with uh, bank reserves, market liquidity, um, sort of minimum level of reserves in the banking sector. So I just wanted to add that point as well. Thank you, Bob. I see you've got your hand up. Let's go to you for some comments here, and then I'm going to kick it over to Jim for some initial thoughts. Yeah, just a quick, uh, you know, uh, the, the statement that inflation has eased somewhat but remains elevated is interesting. At least some acknowledgement of uh, the inflation side of, of things, um, <clears throat> moderating. You know, they still want to keep the rhetoric tight, but uh, you're starting to see some recognition that uh, that they're moving in the right direction. That was that was it. Thanks, Bob. Jim, what are your initial thoughts here? Yeah, I think uh, you know, based on what I've heard. First, I, I want to point out that that last bear's point is a very astute point you know that's a flows point that's the stuff we look at 
Um, I, I couldn't agree more. The Treasury's role here uh, until the debt ceiling is lifted is very stimulative to markets, uh, you know, uh, more so than people are, are giving it credit for. Um, the, when that stops and, and, the, and the Treasury needs to come back to issue bonds, uh, that will reverse. So I think that's, that's an important thing to, to watch. Um, to Bob's point, I, I completely uh, agree. This is, uh, this is a little bit more kind of dullish. This is definitely not the worst case uh, for markets in terms of, of a commentary. You know, they're, they're pretty vocally saying, look, we're not pivoting, but, but uh, you know, we're definitely pausing in a sense, right? They, they really are trying to just get the market back on sides from trying to front run some type of, uh, you know, recession and some type of pivot. Um, and, and I think they're trying to muscle muscle the back end of the curve a little bit, um, but uh, but I think the reality is they're they're basically telegraphing they're pausing, and and I think at the end of the day that's that's bullish. Uh, that's what the market's kind of in the short term. That's that's risk on, and I think I think that's my first takeaway. Thank you, Jim. Now, Joey, you mentioned that they replaced public health and COVID. There's an interesting sentence. The Fed has said, quote, Russia's war against Ukraine is contributing to elevated global uncertainty. It also says, adding that it is extremely concerned about inflation risks. I would really love your thoughts here, Joey, given loss of pandemic and adding of yeah, so I think the the war language, um, so the pandemic language is the first shift. They basically struck public health from the list of uh, factors that they're influencing their assessment of monetary policy. So I think in their mind, it's essentially saying that the pandemic or uh, the movements in the pandemic are no longer really affecting economic variables, or at least they're not important enough to focus on. Uh, and to me, that that's like basically saying China has reopened, which means that most Global economies have reopened, and even though you know COVID's still a thing, it's not the dominant factor. Um, the the statement on uh, the changing language around the war is interesting to me, because first of all, it's essentially saying, you know, even though whereas prior it was pushing up inflation, weighing on growth, now it's it's pushing up uncertainty, um, and I think part of that is reflective of the fact that, you know. Energy prices in Europe have have declined substantially. Energy prices in the United States have declined substantially. You know, food prices, even though they're highly elevated, a lot of them have also pulled back. And just more broadly, like it's been a year, <laughs> so all the prices that went up are no longer contributing to inflation on a year-on-year -year basis. You know, they're uh, occurred in the past. Um, but I guess that that's in in my mind them getting more uh, comfortable about global uh, non-monetary policy risk factors. In my mind, that's them saying, okay, these things are worrying us less. Um, and that is, I think, partially bullish in that their assessment of the economy is improved. But like we discussed earlier, when their assessment of the economy improves, that means that they're probably going to be tightening further because they're more worried that, that growth is going to push up inflation. Um, I will also say, so on that that language about the, they shifted to, from talking about the pace of rate hikes to the extent of rate hikes. And to me, that that's saying, you know, uh, they're less trying to find financial conditions that will um, lower inflation and lower growth. And they're more now trying to find the terminal rate that keeps things balanced. And so that's a shift in thinking that, 
in my mind is a little bit bigger um and you know on balance probably a little bullish so it's not a pivot but it's like the, the <laughs> it's not a pivot yet but it's talking about pivoting instead of where before they were talking about talking about pivoting if you get what i mean yeah kind of kind of like a wink wink nudge nudge so given this 25 BPS, I, I just want to comment on that. It's kind of important to realize the drop to 50 was misinterpreted by many as the first step towards a less hawkish policy. However, not a single member of the FOMC expects rate cuts in 2023. Now, after today, Bob, do we still think this will be the case? Or is the Fed just presuming hawkishness here? And also feel free to make any other comments you have on the report. Yeah, I think um, the there's two different things going on here. The question is, how much tightening does the Fed have to do in order to get to the point where it makes sense to just take a beat, look at what's going on, you know, to, you know, just just kind of do that pause. Pause does not mean we'll cut in the future. Pause just means pausing to take stock of what's going on and to see whether they've done enough to topple the economy or whether they need to do more. And so, um, and, and so I, you know, I, I look at that, the, the balance of things right now, uh, and, and as Joey said, they're now, you know, starting to talk about pausing <laughs> rather than uh, what was happening before. It's interesting, you know, when you go look at the markets and, and you know, take it for what it's worth, Mark, moves aren't big, but you did have, I think, what you see in the um, short-term market action is kind of an immediate set of pricing indicating, you know, tighter than what was expected, uh, where I think probably people, you know, people were reactive to uh, to some of the language, you know, to leaving in the language about the um, the, the need for further for further hikes, the uh, the the continued hikes. But um, but now we're getting a reversal because I think there's you know, what they're doing is they're looking at some subtleties in this statement and subtleties in what's happening. And, and that's starting to, to basically unwind uh, to basically, you know, I think we're actually up a little bit in stocks, depending on what you're squinting at here from, uh, from before the announcement. So, you know, that I think kind of gives you a feel as to about what this is worth, about what the statement is worth, which is, you know, on the margin, it's like a tad, more uh, dovish than you know people were expecting who are trading right now uh, in, in response to the release. But I mean, we're talking about 25 basis points of, of stock market move. So you know, it's not the biggest thing in the world. The main event's coming up. Stay tuned for the main, folks. Bob Elliott, 2023. So now before the presser begins, I want to touch on something that we rarely get to real quickly here. So that topic is housing. So in that vein, real quick here before the presser, it's no secret that the housing price index saw massive ramp up during that first year of COVID. But now we're seeing a fairly dramatic rate of decline. Last bear, in your recent piece, Boom to Bust, you discussed the speed of decline in prices since COVID versus the mid-2000s bubble. Additionally, in 2022, we also saw a decline in U.S. existing home sales of 17.8%. Uh, 
Last Bear, could you elaborate a bit on why these declines are so significant and what, sh what we as a whole should keep an eye on as we move through 2023? Yeah, I think uh, obviously housing is a, is a huge economically important sector um, and one that is highly sensitive, probably the most sensitive to rates of any. Um, and so what I tried to do in my recent piece was just look at sort of an index of um, disposable income over time, sort of multiplied by the purchasing power of a 30-year mortgage, you know, depending on the prevailing rate, to sort of get a, a fair value estimate. And what it shows is that, um, you know, the, the rise in price housing prices over the pandemic was a very rational response to the combination of increasing nominal wages and, um, you know, historically low mortgage rates. And so it wasn't necessarily a, a, you know, an instance of wild speculation or people going out and um, doing things irresponsibly, but more just a, a logical response to, um, you know, to, to policy um, and effectively affordability. And now you have the exact opposite happening, um, not with respect to nominal wages, but with respect to mortgage rates. Um, and so even though rates have come down about a full percentage point since the peak in, in November, you're still looking at over 6% rates on, on mortgages, which is about twice uh, what it was um, in the, you know, throughout the, the depths of the pandemic. Um, and what that means for affordability um, <laughs> means that it, it gets cut in half, not, not exactly, but, um, you know, a, a significant decline and the speed of increase by which that has happened um, really doesn't have a lot of modern precedent. And so, you know, this past year, it flipped from housing being relatively affordable um, when considering those variables to being very unaffordable at current prices. And so you see that rollover happening across the board, um, though, it, though it is still very um, geographically, uh, you know, related to, to what geography you're looking at. The West Coast has seen really significant declines, um, and there's been much less declines on sort of the, the Northeast uh, and the Eastern Seaboard. Um, and so it's in one way, though, I think it's it's good that prices have reverted quickly rather than staying at an elevated level um, for an extended period of time and then falling um, because because there's less houses that actually transacted at those at those high prices. Um, and I don't think that you know people were as anchored into those those prices. I think they really were sort of a, a short term, a, a transitory effect, if you will, um, of of the. Uh, of the pandemic and, and rates, so um, so I think you know there has been a, a, an easing in financial conditions across the board. Um, we see that affect mortgage rates over the past couple months, and you know some of the very recent housing data you could argue is has been better than expected. Um, but until unless we see substantial loosening by the Fed, um, I would expect that we would continue to see housing prices fall further. Um, the good thing is that that's, you know, a lot of the structural issues that made 2008 um, unique and, and bad um, really aren't aren't there. And, and when, when you look at variable rate mortgages um, or sort of the resiliency of, of the financial sector. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it, it's always easy to look back at the most recent example and, and try to say that this is going to happen again. I, I don't think that that's really the case, but I do expect, you know, in, unless you see a significant policy uh, loosening that you're going to continue to see housing declines. Thank you, Last Bear. So now, since we do rarely get to talk about housing, I do want to dive a little deeper on this, but we are short on time before the presser. So, Joey, before we do some closing comments here and some final plugs for all y'all's newsletters and endeavors, real quick, Joey, uh, 
just that request a quick response if you can since we are a little tight on time but on that note you also had a great piece on the housing market in your apresitas newsletter you mentioned that the q4 gdp report gave us a deep look at how historically rapid the housing downturn has been thus far you also discuss a lot about new housing construction the housing labor market and wage growth in the housing sector Joey, could you real quick here before the presser, give us a rundown on that relationship between the housing market with inflation and economic conditions? Sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speed run like the points from uh, my last two editions of the newsletter. But basically, you know, the Fed raised rates really aggressively last year. Um, so far that that's hit consumption a little bit. It's hit, you know, spending a little bit, but it's really hit fixed investment. You know, it's really hit construction of uh, homes and non-residential buildings, investment in factories and, and plants and whatnot. Um, and housing was hit especially hard. So if you look at fixed investment, like real investment housing, how much housing is getting built in America, it's the lowest level since 2015. Um, and that's usually really bad news because lots of people depend on housing construction for, for jobs. You know, there's uh, millions of construction workers and contractors and mortgage lenders that depend on the industry. So far, we haven't seen a decline in employment in the sector, mostly because there's this like massive backlog of units that were started in um, 2020, 2021 that are under construction now um, and that are finishing up you know, slowly over time. So even though starts are down a ton, the units under construction, the actual work that needs to be done is still there. So that's like buffeted uh, the economy from the effects of rising mortgage rates. But I still want to stress that like that fall in real fixed investment is like historic in, in size and it's really substantial. And it doesn't just hit residential investment, it's hitting non-residential investment too. So that was like the, the 30 second version <laughs> of those two posts. But I think, you know, the housing market is obviously very important because it, it you know, housing is the business cycle. Beautiful. Thank you, Joey. So here I do want to do some closing statements from all of you. And please feel free to plug anything you've got going on before we kick over to the presser here. For those of you listening, we will be streaming the presser, as I've said, here on the space, the audio, and then on the Unusual Whales Twitch, twitch.tv slash Unusual Whales for the video and live chat. Before we wrap up here, I just want to tell everybody we're going to be having a surprise space next Thursday. So stay tuned to the Unusual Whales Twitter for an announcement on that. But for now, I want to keep the focus on these fine folks. Jem, please give us your closing thoughts here and anything you got coming out you want to plug, Jem. Uh, yeah, always wonderful to hear everybody's thoughts. Um, I think, uh, you know, I always like leaving people with an actual actionable you know, look, uh, I've kind of mentioned it before, but from now until uh, the Wednesday of, of Feb OpEx, there's a lot of, uh, you know, squeeze left uh, here. Um, there's structural flows that are supportive, people underneath this market that have to kind of buy in. Um, I think given what we saw here from the Fed, which was a potential roadblock, um, given what's likely to transpire with CPI and um, you know, the only thing left here that I think could, could be a landmine is this Friday, you know, uh, you know, Thursday, Friday, Amazon, Apple earnings. But I, I really think uh, if those if, if even one of those isn't bad, uh, you know, we'll uh, you know, we have a, we have clear head that said, you know, 
this is a, a front run and people getting pushed back in, not wanting to miss kind of what's coming here. A lot of uh, Goldilocks rhetoric, and I would really look for an opportunity to eventually sell this thing in a much more volatile tail coming uh, in either kind of the weeks after this rally or, or maybe a month or two after. But uh, that's the broad picture. Uh, you know, takeaway is Goldilocks is the worst case scenario. Soft landing uh, counterintuitively is the worst case. Uh, Kai Volatility is the name of the firm. Uh, you can find us at kaivolatility.com. Uh, we have, uh, you know, weekly uh, kind of info we put out, kaivolatility.com backslash news. Feel free to go on our website, sign up. And, uh, you know, we also have uh, four funds that we run uh, directional trading as well as vol, uh, both for hedge and for income. So feel free to reach out with an inquiry if anybody's interested. Thank you much as always for coming, Jim. Last bear, any closing comments, anything to plug, man? Yeah, I think I would just leave it with, you know, sometimes we like to look at as much data as, as possible, but sometimes it makes sense just to go back to the most basic data. So, um, you know, last quarter's real GDP growth was almost 3%. Um, the unemployment rate is 3.5%, which is historically low. Um, PC inflation uh, is 5%. Core PC inflation is four and a half percent so two to three times higher than target um so the i think that we're making good progress on inflation but i don't think that the job's done i don't think that the fed thinks that the job's done and i think the market has gotten um out over its skis uh predicting sort of um significant cuts coming forward but um if you like anything that i had to say here you can follow me on twitter um and subscribe to my Substack. but thanks guys for for having me on it's always a good, great conversation Thanks as always for coming. Always great points and feedback from you, Les Bear. Bob, anything left to say here on your side? Anything you got to plug? Well, I think my main uh, my main point to leave people with is uh, you got to think about what is priced into these asset markets, particularly in the bond and the stock market, relative to the probability that we get you know a Goldilocks type outcome. And I, at least when I look at that, I see. Uh, that now is not the time uh, to be leveraging into assets. There's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of good outcomes priced into both of those markets. Uh, good meaning, you know, a lower inflation and inflation returning to target very seamlessly. Um, and that's actually, you know, in, in a lot of ways, when uh, the, my day job uh, is uh, running the HFND ETF. Uh, from uh, Unlimited Funds, which you folks should check out, where we're, uh, we use uh, our experience and technology to uh, try to replicate the returns of the hedge fund industry, the gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry. Um, and that's uh, been, uh, the HFND ETF has been the uh, fastest growing uh, independent, actively managed ETF launch the last few years. Um, so definitely check it out if it's appropriate for your portfolio or get in touch with us uh, if it makes sense. A lot of that intuition that I just described is actually reflected in the positioning in that portfolio today as well. Um, also, if you want to keep track of what we're doing with uh, what I'm thinking in terms of the macro economy, as many of you saw in here, I'm pretty uh, regularly writing on Twitter. So check it out. Love to to go back and forth with people and uh, and definitely check out unlimitedfunds.com if you want to learn more uh, about uh, about uh, what we're doing. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Appreciate having you here, Bob. Thank you. 
Joey, anything else you want to plug? Any final closing comments before we flip over to the presser here? Yeah, we, I just got a couple minutes uh, before the pressure, so I'll, I'll keep things short. But it's always a pleasure to be on. Uh, I'll say I think this meeting doesn't tell you so much that we uh, um, didn't already know, but the devil's already in the details. Uh, the devil's always in the details, and I expect that Powell's going to be, have to um, – is going to be trying to add detail in the presser here, especially because this isn't a, an SCP meeting. Um, but yeah, I write my own newsletter on Substack. It's called Apricotas. Uh, I wrote a piece that went out this morning about uh, the slowdown we experienced last year. I've got a piece coming out later this week on uh, Canada and the Canadian economy, and I've got a piece coming out this weekend on labor market data. Um, so if any of that's interested to you, uh, consider subscribing. Um, and I tweet charts constantly so if you <laughs> are interested in economic data um i'm i'm your guy but yeah i always appreciate being able to come on these spaces and talk to everybody i always appreciate having you here too joey you always have really good commentary feedback drive really good discussion and honestly that's that's my only hope for these spaces is really good discussion and folks listening Truly, I'm I'm not I'm not the kind of person that usually does that that Friday follow type thing. But the folks that we have on these spaces for these macro events are they're absolutely brilliant. They're amazing writers. If if you know you have even an iota of interest in all of this macro stuff, definitely be following these folks up here. Can't thank you guys enough for coming as usual. Thank you everybody for coming. Like I said, surprise space next Thursday. Some news coming out then as well. So stay tuned to the Unusual Whales Twitter for an announcement for that space. And of course, as I've said repeatedly, follow these folks up here for more on macro.